Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Here we go. Talk shoes. Recorded live. Okay, so this is Friday evening, May 7th, 2010. We're about four minutes late starting because, once again, I'm having to use both my iPhone and this computer to be able to get the Foxy website working from the Denny's website. But tonight's topic is necromancy. And do we want to introduce ourselves around? We still don't have everybody, do we? Why? This one. Where did he go? Okay. Okay. All right, Vivian, Tina, Jason, sit down, Jen. Okay. All right, so we we had a speaker that we've been trying to get in for the longest time um, to do his own particular take on necromancy. And what we decided was that uh, if we couldn't get him in, we were going to do the classical through modern version of necromancy, what what most people think of as necromancy. Um, So we're going to talk about that tonight, and hopefully that will give us a good basis to go from when we can finally get this gentleman in to give his presentation on necromancy so we know how it differs from what we ordinarily think of. Um, This is one of my favorite topics. I actually wrote a book called On the Care and Feeding of Spirits uh, a couple of years ago now. But um, there's different kinds of necromancy depending on what period you're talking about. Um, In the ancient classical world, necromancy was considered a means of divination. You would call up spirits of the dead to get them to give you information that they were able to get hold of on the other side by gossiping with other dead people, basically. Um, In some traditions, it was thought that just by the fact that you were dead, you were uh, privy to a whole lot more information than anybody living could ever be privy to. There basically wasn't anything that you couldn't know. There are other cultures who thought that just like people, you know, a particular dead person is only going to have so much information, and um, you you would call up particular kinds of people or a certain person to get certain information. So, for example, Odysseus in, um, in the Greek tradition has the witch Circe tell him how to call up the spirit of Tiresias the prophet. And he has to go to a particular cave to do it because that's where the door to the underworld is in the Greek tradition. Um, the dead belong to a particular underworld and have to come up from that underworld. Uh, they're drawn by sacrifices of blood, and uh, they're, they're hungry for it. So Odysseus performs this ritual, offers the spirit Tiresias some blood to get the information that he wants, 
And the spirit in that case is very much like a, a shade. He's very ephemeral. Um, when you get into the Middle Ages, the idea of necromancy uh, is thought of much more in the sense of performing a ritual around a particular dead body and calling the spirit of that person or another spirit into the dead body so that it reanimates and can talk to you that way. Um, in the research that I was doing, it seems like that was only supposed to be for somebody who is newly dead, i.e. within the last 12 months. Uh, if it was anybody who was dead longer than that, then all they did was call forth the ghost, just like they did in the classical tradition. Um, unlike the classical Greek tradition, you didn't have to go to a particular place. What you had to do in the medieval view was draw a circle with certain symbols in it, use certain objects, sometimes objects that belonged to the person that you were trying to call up, um, objects that had certain sacred significance, um, incenses were used. I see references to fumigation, which is uh, using the smoke from different incenses, like a sage bundle or something like that, to clean a space. Uh, or in this case, apparently, it was used to what we would call smudge the dead body. Um, but in the Catholic sense, in the Middle Ages, the, the Catholic Church was the predominant church. In the Catholic sense of the word necromancy, um, it wasn't possible for spirits of the dead to come back uh, and talk to anybody. They were in heaven or they were in hell, but they were otherwise incommunicado. So whatever spirits the necromancers were talking to or thought they were talking to, they were not the spirits of the dead, and they certainly wouldn't be the spirits of God or the angels because God and the angels didn't communicate that way and were the same. So what they had to be was demons. And in that way, the term necromancy ended up becoming synonymous with the term for um, demonology and magic, black magic, using demons, invoking demons, that kind of thing. Um, because as far as the church was concerned, anything that got called up during necromantic rites was a demon, not a spirit. Uh, so in a lot of the medieval texts, there are many references to various wizards, sorcerers, magicians, witches, uh, warlocks, whatever they want to call them practicing dark arts, black rites, and necromancy was just like a, a synonymous coverall term that they used for whatever black magic they were supposed to be practicing. Um, when they were actually trying to call up spirits of the dead as opposed to demon summoning, they, they did some rather unpleasant things, uh, as with most things during the Middle Ages. Um, like the practice of medicine, say. They did all sorts of superstitious, disgusting things just because they figured the more disgusting it was, the more likely it was to work for whatever reason. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it was associated with dark magic as well. Um, I found it particularly interesting while I was looking through some of the books that I, that I have, and I can't remember where exactly it was. Oh, I think it was this one, Magic in the Middle Ages. Um, this has a whole chapter on necromancy, and uh, let me get the bibliographical information. Okay, it's Magic in the Middle Ages by Richard Kiekefer, K-I-E-C-K-H-E-F-E-R, who is a professor of the history and literature of religions at Northwestern, and it's published by Cambridge University Press. 
and came out in, first published in 1989. So there's a chapter in here on necromancy. Uh, let's see. Oh, and even before we get to that, it, he does have a note that, um, in particular, uh, dead people who had died violent or untimely deaths were especially sought out in necromancy because for some reason it was thought that they had special powers. So they were more likely to be called on. Okay, reasons to use necromancy. Uh, intended to summon a demon who will impart unsurpassed mastery of all the arts and sciences without any effort on the part of the necromancer. Um, this is one of those instances where it was supposed to be demon summoning, summoning the spirits of the dead, but a lot of things that we think of as um, uh, typical Faustian bargains, like Faustus drawing a circle and calling up calling up the demon um, Mephistopheles. Uh, the, things, the things, well, the things that Mephistopheles would give him and that, that Faustus discovered getting from him were typical things that magicians were supposed to call up demons to have them do so. They weren't the sorts of things that you would ordinarily expect the spirits of the dead to be able to do for you if you're actually practicing necromancy, but what Faustus was practicing would have been considered necromancy because that's the way the church thought of it. Um, so the, the reasons for necromancy in the Middle Ages tended to be the same reasons for, for um, calling up a demon. Uh, Magic typically fall, fell into three categories. First, it's used to affect other people's minds and wills, to drive them mad, to inflame them to love or hatred, to gain their favor, or to constrain them to do or not to do some deed. It is not only human beings who can be thus constrained, but spirits and animals as well. While necromancy is not often used to work bodily harm, it can lead to discomfort that is physical as well as mental. A uh, 12th century monk has a conjuration calling upon the demons to afflict some victims so that he cannot sleep, eat, drink, or do anything else. Uh, second, the necromancer can create illusions. He can create the illusion of a boat or a horse, which will take him wherever he wishes to go. He can conjure forth an extravagant feast with banqueting and entertainment. Uh, equally illusory is the use of necromancy to raise the dead. A consecrated ring placed on the hand or foot of a corpse will suffice to summon six demons in turn each of whom will animate the body for one day so that it can rise up and speak. The same ring put on the finger of a living person will make him appear dead until it is removed. But again, that's supposed to be an illusion. Um, and the third purpose of the third main purpose of necromancy is to discern secret things, whether past, present, or future. Um, this is a divinatory necromancy. And again, that was more typical of you know, classical necromancy, you call forth the spirit of the dead to give you information and to tell you something about the future that they can see that you can't because they're dead and time works differently. Um, but because the Catholic Church didn't believe you're actually talking to a spirit of the dead, they thought they were all demons. And so the magicians wouldn't necessarily call a spirit of the dead for divination in this fashion. They would summon a demon to give them information. Um, I don't know if any of you ever read the Dresden Files, but he's actually done this on occasion. He, he calls up a demon and has to give them some piece of information, like a piece of his name. I think it's a piece of his name. He has, he has several names that go into his full name. And anybody who 
gets all the pieces of his name and knows his full name would have power over him. Um, so he doesn't like to do that often because he doesn't want to give away too many pieces of his name, but he'll call forth sometimes a demon to get information that he can't get any other way. Uh, yeah, one, one manuscript now says the devil will come in the form of a black dog and answer all questions. Okay, so there are different sacrifices and rituals that the magician would, would perform. One has a sacrifice of a white cock, a captive hoopoe, brain, tongue, and heart of a hoopoe, especially valuable for enchanters. Take a bat and sacrifice it with your right hand, with your left hand, draw blood from its head. It was widely believed that demons, like the ghosts of classical literature, can be enticed by blood, especially by human blood. Thus, according to Michael Stott, necromancers often use water mixed with blood or wine that resembles blood, and they sacrifice with flesh of a, or a living human being, such as a bit of their own flesh or of a corpse, knowing that the consecration of a spirit in a ring or a bottle cannot be achieved except by the performance of many sacrifices. The sacrifice was thus usually of an animal, but sometimes other substances were offered to demons. The necromancer might be required to scatter milk and honey in the air, or to place ashes, flour, salt, and other items in jars which would be placed within the magic circle. The Prague manuscript tells the magician to offer cold bread, cheese, three shoe nails, barley, and salt as quote-unquote presents for the demons. Um, this sounds very typical of some of the manuscripts that I've seen that, that are supposed to be black magic that were floating around in the 80s, grimoires and things like that, that had a lot of the, the classic medieval type stuff in it, you know, coffin nails, graveyard dirt, all that kind of crap. Um, Well, that falls under the category of the people who have suffered a sudden violent death yeah. are considered to have a special powers. Oh, and yeah, the, the one comment that I thought was especially interesting. Um, people would summon the demons to get information, or they'd summon spirits of the dead to get information. People can also get information from books, and if you're reading a book that's written by somebody who died ages ago, in a sense, that's a form of necromancy because you're getting information from somebody who's now dead and that you're still able to get information from them. Um, well, a library is a full of necromancy. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, Okay, so they talk about fumigation, they talk about all the different things that, that people could be accused of being necromancers for, uh, which, which I thought really, you know, it really struck me because one of the things in there was if you dressed all in black or if you dressed all in white, which basically covers all of the modern-day Wiccans and Pagans and Goths. And it also covers all the people who practice Santeria and Voodoo and Candomblé yeah. and all of those things, which are, in a way, uh, a kind of necromancy. We're losing people. Why are we losing people? Okay. <laughs> uh, in the different African traditions, the way they're still practiced today, um, people wear all white and Ancestor worship is a very important feature of the religion. And offerings are made 
in the form of animals and animal blood uh, to Orishas who are spirits. They're not exactly, they're not the spirits of dead people. They're not exactly gods, but they fulfill more or less the same purpose that a lot of the pagan traditions think of as the different gods and deities. Um, in the in the African tradition, in the Issa tradition, of which Sanskrit and Voodoo are part, there's one god overall, but he doesn't participate in day-to-day life anymore. So the Orishas participate with human beings in day-to-day life and work as mediaries to God. Um, so that when practitioners are making offerings to those deities, that's their doorway, their connection to the divine that way and to get sort of supernatural help. Um, so they're doing a lot of the things that the necromancers in the Middle Ages were doing. They're contacting the spirits of the dead in, in the form of their ancestors, and, and uh, they're also contacting what the Catholic Church would have considered demons during the Middle Ages. Uh, and yes, they dress all in white. Um, but when we get into the modern era, we get into some more interesting views of necromancy. First of all, it's no longer considered um, well, it's it's no longer considered demonology is no longer considered part of the necromancy. Um, and as some of these things were pointing out, uh, necromancy as it was practiced in the Middle Ages had a lot to do with uh, some of the astral magic that came out of the Middle East. That's where you get a lot of the circles and the symbols and the circles and certain times of day or times of year that were considered, you know, especially propitious for the kinds of summonings that they wanted to do. Um, but when you get back into the modern era, it, it goes back to being about talking to spirits of the dead. And so things that are no longer called necromancy, but really are necromancy, are more or less what's being practiced today. Um, seances, channeling, spiritism, mediums, spiritualism, that's necromancy. Voodoo and Santeria, that's necromancy. Um, a lot of the goth practitioners and the vampire authors that have come out in the last 10, 20 years, they have their own brands of magic that they practice, of which <clears throat> magic dealing with death energies and the spirits of the dead is a big deal. So I've got two of the three in front of me. Uh, one is Constantinos, and he wrote the Gothic Grimoire. Yes. And that is 2002 from Llewellyn Publications. And there's a whole chapter in here at the end of the book about opening the gates to the underworld. Uh, the right you're about to read may be used to literally grant you access to the underworld, to the mythical representation of the afterlife. There is a chance that if you choose to perform this right, you too will not end up communicating with the dead. The goddess and book might decide to share instead a glimpse of your own dark half in the form of a visible manifestation in your room of the goddess Arishkigal, and she will curiously look a lot like you do. Um, so he goes on to describe a whole ritual that you can do to try and gain access to the underworld. And it's not specifically designed to talk to anybody who's dead, 
but more to try and connect to the energies of the gods and goddesses of the underworld and the energies, the magical energies associated with the other side, the spirit world, the underworld, that kind of thing, um, in a very similar fashion to Wiccan calling down the moon in in a normal circle. Um, Maybe with shamanism, they have a, a path where uh, you have to deal with your shadow self, which is very much man. Yes, and in the very beginning of the... Um, the Wikipedia article on necromancy when it's talking about the origins through the classical era into the medieval era, right at the top it starts off talking about its its roots in Stone Age shamanism. Because uh, the first job of the shaman has always been to be the intermediary between the tribe and the spirit world and to perform whatever rites over the bodies of the deceased to make sure that they get safely to the underworld, the other world, the spirit realm, and that anybody who's sick, uh, because, say, they have a piece of their soul that's been stolen by somebody from the other side, the shaman goes and gets it and brings it back so that they don't sicken even more and die. Um, so, yeah, shamanism has a lot to do with necromancy. Um, and then Constantinus had another book called The Nocturnicon, Calling Dark Forces and Powers, which is even more on point. That was 2005. I think it's also a long, yeah, a long publication. And here he's got an entire chapter on death magic. Assimilation of powers by simulation has been practiced by seemingly superstitious cultures, wearing a wolf's fur before a hunt and painting the face of a demon on oneself before attempting an exorcism are two terrific examples, spanning not only different types of synthetic magic, but cultures separated by oceans as well. And he talks about the fact that you're trying to, by, by wearing a wolf fur, you're trying to compare like with like and invite like to be attracted to like. Uh, so what if Hades or death in any of his or her myriad guises can the powers possessed by the Lord of the Underworld be tapped into by the living? Um, and keep in mind, Constantinus, in addition to being a Wiccan for a while, was also a practicing ceremonial magician, so he likes using the, the uh, practice of God form assumption, which is picturing the god or goddess in as great a detail as possible with all the symbols and attributes and music and sound and color and everything that would be associated with that god or goddess that would attract them and trying to make um, trying to make a, a hospitable environment for them so that they will then either come down into you or that you can then feel the experience of becoming them and tap into their power uh, so he's basically talking about doing that with death gods and goddesses and um, merging with Hades and getting a little taste of the power of Hades. And so the whole chapter is about that. And then he talks about some of the reasons why you would want to use uh, death energy and magic that you can think that you could do with, do with it. Uh, and then he goes on to something called Dance of the Dead, uh, which is dealing specifically with a very necromantic practice, um, dealing with a dead body, if you have access to one, 
um, just just being near it. It's something similar to what Layla Lindell talks about, uh, which I will get to in a minute. And the second author is Michelle Belanger, who is probably best known for writing a psychic vampire codex, but she wrote a book called Walking the Twilight Path, a Gothic Book of the Dead. And even though she doesn't use the term necromancy in the title, this is also by the Wallen Publications, 2008, uh, basically the entire book is a primer in necromancy. Um, she talks about death and death energies generally, about rituals and altars and implements, um, different meditations that you can do to get yourself in touch with your own fear of death and your own life cycle and death as an energy around you. Yeah. Yes, hello. Hi. How are you? I'm all right. Kurt? Hi, I'm Vivian. Hi. Nice to meet you. Um, we've, we've got this going on TalkShoe as a conference call um, and recording it for the archives, just so you know. Okay. Um, no idea what you just said, but okay. Uh, it means you don't want to give out any personal information because it's recorded. So, for example, somebody almost gave away my address one meeting, and they're like, "Nah, nah, nah." Okay, so it's recording. Yes, yeah, it's it's recording. It's picking up on what we say. The idea is that it's set up as a conference call so that anybody who can't make it in person to the meeting can call in and hear what we're saying, and we can hear them. Okay. And they're also on the chat, although we can't use the chat function right now, because the venue that we're in changed their policy recently about bandwidth. So I can't access the pop-up window that allows us to use the chat function. Right. Right. Um, so, but once it's recorded, it goes into the archive on our talk show page. So anybody from the meetup who wants to can go back and listen to it as a resource. And uh, tonight we're talking about necromancy, and I've already gone in depth into the origins and classical Greek. Sorry? I know I'm like all sorts of things cropping up at the last moment. No problem. Well, what you can do after this evening is over is go back to the talk show page and pick up the archive and <laughs> listen to it from the beginning. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I was talking about Michelle Belanger's book. Uh, walking the Twilight Path, uh, and she has journaling exercises in here and meditations, uh, things like planning your own funeral, uh, elemental information, the art of crossing. Uh, she has some wonderful pictures in here, too, from different cemeteries, um, at the tomb of a baby, um, the purpose of which putting them in here is so that you can meditate on them uh, and the different things that they represent so you can get in touch with how it makes you feel, how you feel about the transition, like here's one called Beautiful Death. It's, it's Death is a beautiful goddess instead of a scary guy in a coat. Um, give me a moment to settle down. You don't know what you want to drink? He, he just got here. Oh, yeah. Coke. Pepsi, whichever you got, large. Um, there's a gate on a tomb. The purpose of which in, in the art of cemeteries is all about the idea of being a gate to the underworld or a doorway between realms. Uh, what all of these modern books and, and modern approaches to necromancy have in common is that they see death energy as the energy of transition. It's not an ending. It's 
or it's not just an ending, it's also a beginning. It's a doorway between walls, not just the end of the road kind of thing. Um, and our culture has such a tremendous fear and distaste for death that uh, a lot of the discussions and a lot of the meditations in books like these have to deal with, say this, death is tragedy. The sadness of death, the the horror of having everything come to an end, all that kind of thing, the the pain and the fear of our own mortality. And so they try to get you past all that so that you can actually work with uh, the gods and goddesses of the underworld and spirits of death without being afraid of them, like they're going to try and kill you, because that's not what spirits of death do. Spirits of death do not try to kill you. Spirits of death are there for you when you're in an accident or suffer an illness where you're so badly damaged that you wouldn't want to go on living <laughs> and and end your suffering. So, so death is seen in these paths as a great friend uh, and very misunderstood and very lonely and very sad for being misunderstood, which is Layla Wendell's big thing. Um, but this book by Michelle Belanger is, yeah, thank you, <laughs> is really one long initiation path. It's uh, the meditations and the rituals and the journaling and everything built up to a shamanic exercise that she puts at the end. And there's various exercises throughout the book that could qualify as shamanic, but there's one in particular at the end of the book that um, just honestly makes me cringe, only because, (laughs) yeah, yeah, you you know the one I'm talking about. Um, In shamanic tradition, there is usually a point in the initiation of the shaman where they go through a death-rebirth kind of ritual. Um, in some in some traditions, like Native American traditions, it can be a vision quest kind of thing where the person goes out into the desert and they fast, they have no food or water. Um, sometimes they, they use hallucinogenic substances they see their spirit animal or the totem animal comes, talks to them, sometimes several animals over the course of the initiation come and talk to them. And those become their special guides in their shamanistic path. Um, in other traditions, notably in the South American traditions, where the bat is one of the animals associated with shamanism, because uh, they seem to be regenerative, um, shamans are actually buried. They're, they're put down into a grave-sized pit uh, that is covered over with a plank of wood or something, and they spend the night there. And one of the things that is supposed to happen to them while they're down in this pit, because technically, ritually, they are quote-unquote dead, is that all the spirits in the spirit realm can come to them and either get into a fight with them, try to help them, you know, talk to them or try and scare the crap out of them. And by the time everyone comes to get them the next morning and opens up the grave and pulls them out, they're completely changed. They're reborn as another person. They're reborn as a shaman, starting their new life in the past. Thanks for coming. Debating food. Yeah, I got you. I got you.
So what Michelle Belanger does at the end of this book is describe a practice that she's basically been preparing you for throughout the course of the book, um, where you set up your tools and you get appropriate incenses, oils, and whatever else you want to use. Um, pick a particularly appropriate night and go through this ritual to get in touch with the energies of death the way you have been in some of the other exercises in the book. Um, except in this case, she says to invite all of these different energies and spirits from the other side to come and eat you, which gave me pause when I read it. <laughs> because... No, no, because she makes absolutely no suggestion whatsoever that you should do battle with these things. She doesn't say, have them come and try and fight you if they can. She says, no, lie there passively and invite them to eat you. And then let them eat you. Let them completely eat you. Let them eat every last scrap of you. Let them eat every last scrap of your energy. And then when you wake up the next day, believe me, you'll be a completely different person. And I'm like, yeah, you will. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I love Michelle Belanger. I love everything that she's written that I've read. But... That just made me go, you're telling people to what? <laughs> I wouldn't do that. I would never do that. And I've been practicing for decades now. And I love working with the other side. I love the spirits on the other side. I've run across nasty things that I wouldn't want to spend any time with. And under no circumstances would even the things I like be allowed to come in and just, like, consume me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I will I will share my body. I will share my spirit energy. I will not allow something to just eat me. And, and this is coming from somebody who's vampiric and who deals with vampires on the other side and who shares energy and, and, you know, energy goes back and forth both ways. But I will not just let something completely consume me. Um, but there's a lot of really good stuff in that book. There's a lot of really interesting exercises. There's a lot of great methods for getting in touch with your own attitudes toward death and, and with the energies of death and various death deities and underworld deities. Um, and finally, one of the most, I don't know, I would have to say in her own way, far out writers is Layla Wendell. She's she's the third one that I was talking about. Unfortunately, I don't have any of her books with me for anybody to look through. Um, I have some of her articles, um, one of which is posted on the web, and another one of which is, or another series of which, is at her website, which is westgatenecromantic.com. She's the only author of the three that actually refers to what she's doing as necromancy. And what she's doing is not specifically calling on the spirits of the dead. She's calling on the spirit of death himself. She sees death, the angel of death, as the angel as Azrael, I think she calls him Azrael. Yeah, the, the Grim Reaper, uh, which is one of one of the guises, one of the depictions, the artistic depictions. Um, the the angel of death is 
usually referred to as Uriel or Ariel, and Azriel is is a variation on that name that happens to be the one that she prefers or that he's that he's told her. Um, so all of the writings that she has, while they sometimes deal with things similar to what Constantinos and Michelle Belanger are talking about with um, doing doing exercises uh, that make you feel more at ease with death and the dead and death energies. In her mindset, uh, so as I was saying, when she's doing these things, she's doing them not to get in touch with the spirits of anybody who's dead, but rather to get in touch with the spirit of death himself and build a relationship with that spirit as if he were her own personal guardian angel. And from what I've seen of, of what I have seen of her writing, that seems to be the way she sees it too. Um, he is her spirit lover in the sense that shamans have have spirits as their lovers instead of taking a human lover. Uh, he is her guardian angel, the way most people think of the cute little angel who keeps us from getting into car accidents, kind of guardian angel. That seems to be the relationship that she has with them. Um, I haven't been able to get any of her books yet, or I haven't gotten around to getting any of her books yet. I want to, because what I've seen of, of the articles that she's written and some of the excerpts from her books, she seems to have a very similar attitude towards the angel of death that I do, even though some of the things are that, that she does and that she writes about and some of the stuff that she's seems like channeled from the angel of death, uh, seems to be what it's supposed to be, um, are, are kind of far out even for me. But um, in Necromancy 101, which is up at realmagic.com, uh, she says, necromantic practice is aligned with neither the right nor the left-hand path. It is simply an acute attunement to what I like to call the death energy, an affiliation and natural affinity some people have for the current of transition. And then she says, it is a fact that some people just feel more at home among the dead than the, rather than the living. I happen to be one of those people, so I can connect with that. Necromantic practice does not involve, involve dominance and servitude. In other words, the spirits of the dead or of death itself are not the magician's second call, nor will they nor he do your bidding. It is only the arrogant soul that believes this. One cannot conjure nor command spirits. Now, this is in direct contradiction to the way medieval magicians used to practice it, but I always felt the same thing. If you're going to call on somebody from the other side, don't try and make them a slave. You know, that's just rude. <laughs> it's just rude. I mean, you don't, I don't do that with any entity that I get in contact with, whether it's an angel or a fae or somebody, you know, the spirit of the dead or just whatever it is that I contact with. You know, I, I do it from the point of view of friendship, you know, like like going into a coffee shop and, and arranging to meet with somebody and, you know, you say, hi, how are you doing? Can I get you a cup of coffee? You know, tell me about yourself. Let me tell you about me. Let me tell you about myself, you know. That's the way you make friends with somebody, whoever or whatever they are. You don't go in there, hit them with a whip and say, bow before me, slime ball. You know, that's just not the way to do it. <laughs> so I'm totally with her on that. Uh, true necromantic workings, however, do not involve using brutality, desecration of the dead, or any other practice that one would consider the antithesis of reverence. Here again, she's directly speaking to the practices of the Middle Ages. Um, necromantic rituals are neither black nor white magic. They are white of twilight, a merging of dark and light in a beautiful and natural union where all dividing lines become a blur. 
Uh, if a spirit has something vital to Okay, so I'm going to try and record the rest of this in Audacity and see if maybe we can add it on to what we have in TalkShoe later on. So if at any point we have anybody in the meetup group who is willing to put in some computer time doing some of the stuff that I'd love to be able to do with it, like getting some of this stuff edited and loaded into iTunes as a podcast, um, or putting up some of the recordings that I've made from this meetup and from some of the other meetups, like the meetup I'm going to be doing in a couple of months. Um, is it at the end of June? I think it's at the end of June. It might be at the end of this month, I'm not sure. But it's either the Pagan Meetup or the Witches Meetup. Um, Anne has asked me to come in again to speak about vampires. So, and we want to start trying to get people who are willing to work on transcribing some of it too so we can turn it into a book if and when we can do that because, um, but anyway, so now that everybody seems to be back that we're going to get back and we've got the recording going again. Uh, and then there was another, there was another article by Sharon Crow, I think is how you say her name. Uh, it's a Gaelic spelling. Uh, that was on the same realmagic.com site with Lila Wendell's article, um, which at the very end of it, she says, so take a tip from the Irish and celebrate the passing of loved ones. Be merry, dance in their graves, sing and, sing and drink from sunset to sunset. Chances are that is exactly what they would want you to be doing. And remember to be wary of those who claim that quote-unquote real necromancy is bothering the dead to give you some sort of silly information that you think you need to know. If there's something that you really do need warning for, the dead will contact you. Um, and that's always been very much my attitude, too, is, you know, you're, you should celebrate at a wake. You know, I'm part Irish. And the whole concept for the Irish is that if somebody's died, then, yeah, you're going to mourn their passing because you're going to miss them. But they've gone on to a much better place where they're having a whole hell of a lot more fun than any of us here are. So you shouldn't be you shouldn't be mourning their passing. You shouldn't be feeling bad for them because they're dead. You should be celebrating the fact that they're finally free, and and celebrate that with them and have fun with them. Um, but for some reason, people from other cultures seem to not not understand that at all, and they think that the Irish are morbid and choose odd times to party and. Yeah, but you know, if somebody invited you over to their home for a party, and in the middle of the parlor was a really dead guy with a barrel of booze under his feet and maybe another one as a pillow, and somebody had like stuck a cigar in his folded hands or something as a joke, most Americans would be kind of put out by that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you see, you see other things. You see other things like on TV, huh? Usually, oh God! Well, I mean, just wakes, wakes in general, wakes in general, Irish or not, the tradition is all over the world that you go to somebody's house because of a passing, and whether or not the body is still actually in the house, which most people don't do anymore. But that's why funeral parlors are called funeral parlors because the concept used to be that you would keep the body in the parlor, which was the visiting room of the house, so that everybody could come in and pay their respects, and then you'd take it to the graveyard from there to be buried. Now, so people don't have to keep a corpse in their house, most people have a distaste for that now, 
it goes to the funeral parlor where it is embalmed, which is not something that they used to do. The whole purpose of a wake is that after the person died, you would sit up with them all night or for a few days, and there would always be somebody with the body in the room with the body just in case they weren't really dead and they woke up. That's why it's called a wake. That's why it's called a wake. And honestly, I think that's one of the reasons why the Irish have the big parties that they do for the wakes, because God knows if anything's going to wake up somebody out of a coma, it ought to be a really loud, really boisterous <laughs> party. Because if the noise doesn't get him to wake up, then, then splashing booze all over him and hearing women shrieking and giggling and music playing and jokes being told and lots of ribald humor, that's going to get them to want to come back. But anyway, um, even nowadays when bodies are taken to the funeral parlor for embalming, so they're not in the home anymore, um, and wakes are held as a very somber gathering in the funeral parlor where people come and express their sorrow for the family and the family's crying and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and there's a little guest book for everybody to sign and there's stands with flowers everywhere. Sounds, sounds like my family's funeral idea. Yeah, that's that's the typical. It's, a, it's like three tables of food in the guest book. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a typical American funeral. I mean, the typical American wake these days. Except usually, in my experience, they don't have food in the funeral parlor at the wake, or even, <coughs> you know, maybe maybe in another room, a separate room. But usually, that you know, people don't want to eat in the same place where there are bodies. Um, and I can tell you, there's a reason for that because the wakes that I've gone to in funeral parlors. They keep it ice cold in there to try and, you know, slow down the rate of decomposition, which continues even though the body's embalmed. And they have lots and lots and lots of flowers of particular kinds like lilies and things like that that are not there just because of their symbolism. They're there because they are very, very sweet and cloyingly scented. So it's all so supposed to try and cover up the, the scent. <laughs> right. But Honest to God, I know I have a really good sense of smell. There are some scents that you just cannot cover with cold and lots of really sickly sweet flowers. And decomp is one of them. And it's unmistakable, even if you've never smelled it in your life, you know what that smell is. So I can understand why people don't want to eat in the same place. But what usually happens is after the wake and after the funeral or somewhere before or after, people will go over to the house, the family's house, and they will have another gathering there. Sometimes it's just private for the family and people won't stay, but neighbors and friends will still come by with food. Mm -hmm. And the theory there is, number one, the, the family is going to be too bereaved to want to do anything like cook. So you bring food over for them. So you bring food over for them to do them a favor, to give them, um, to give them something to eat for the week. But also because they know that there's liable to be a lot of guests visiting in the house and possibly staying over as family comes in from out of town for the funeral. Um, so they make extra food for them, you know, so that that's not another additional work burden and financial burden on the family is to feed all the people that they have coming into their house. Um, so even today, you know, people still do that part of the tradition of the wake. Actually, when I was, in, when I was one of my aunts up, um, up in North Florida, when, when they did theirs, we did the funeral. We came, we came back to the old old style houses, three tables full of, I mean, 
pies, cakes, your hands, and like walk in there and just like, wow, hi. <laughs> see big family, also leave whatever, you know, don't eat so they can, you know, eat it for the week. Right. And and food is um food is a very old and powerful magic. Um, when you want to really show love for someone and caring for someone, you cook for them. Um, even if you don't actually feed them yourself, the whole gesture of making food for someone and giving it to them is, is a very, very um, old magic that revolves around the very, very ancient rules of hospitality. Um, and a lot of magic has to do with food preparation and with the ingredients that you put into food. You've heard of the, the Scarborough Fair line, parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. I most people yeah. most people think of that as you know just random herbs that are common in a lot of recipes. That's actually a medieval love spell. Nice. Those are ingredients for medieval love spell. And that's what a lot of love magic consisted of, was putting a certain combination of ingredients into the food that you were making for the person that you were in love with. Um, as long, you know, in addition, put in, put in the energy, the magic energy that went with it. So when they say made with love, yeah, exactly yeah they, they mean that there's actually a, a magic in it. There's, a, there's an energy in the food. Um, but also I think when somebody dies and people don't know what to say and they don't know how to comfort someone, making food is a really simple, straightforward answer that everybody feels comfortable with. It gives them something to do and it makes them feel like they're being useful and helpful. Oh, not, to, not, not just to that, but the majority of the time, if your husband dies and your wife, you're mourning so much for him, oh, I don't really feel like going to the kitchen to cook. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's what I was saying earlier. Even if they don't, even if the, the gathering at the house afterwards is just for family and the neighbors and friends don't stay, they'll still come by and they'll drop off food, not just to help feed the guests, but just because they figure the family is going to be too bereaved to want to cook. So you're actually bringing food over so that they have something to eat for the week, so that they're not like living off of takeout and frozen food and all that kind of thing. Um, and that's even in this day and age when most people don't like on a regular basis go over to each other's houses and bring home cooked food because hardly anybody cooks anymore. You find that for uh, wakes and funerals when somebody dies, all of a sudden everybody's a cook, you know, and they don't just like bring over. They, they don't just like bring over a deli platter from the grocery store or something, you know, they'll, they'll cook a casserole, you know, and that's, that's like classic too, particularly it's a casserole, some kind of casserole, yeah. some kind of lasagna in a casserole dish, yeah, actually, no, actually, no, in my or some kind of pie. We don't, we don't call each other, we don't call each other, but the day we have a funeral, everybody's coming out of the woodwork. It's like, okay, yeah. wait a minute, I, I haven't seen you in 10 years. Yeah. Like the uncle from this brother, this is like. Oh, when my, when my nephew died last August, usually it's my mother's or my father's job to call family on their respective sides and let them know that somebody's passed away. But because it was their grandchild, I didn't feel like they should have to do that. So I got my uh, father's sister's number from him so I could call her. And I hadn't spoken to her in years. I've spoken to her very rarely over the years because she's out in the West Coast and she's, you know, she's a very taciturn individual. Um, so we don't really keep in touch. And I remember the first words out of her mouth when I called her and I told her who it was because she didn't recognize she didn't recognize my voice. And then I told her and she didn't make a connection to the name at first. And I'm like, your your brother Guy's daughter. <laughs> and she's like, who died? <laughs> and I'm like, well, 
mom and dad are fine, but I didn't want them to have to make calls because, you know, dad's grandson is dead and I wanted to let you know, you know, and she's like, who? And I said, my sister Helen's son, your brother's grandson is, is died. <laughs> And she's like, well, what happened? And I'm like, he killed himself. And she says, well, what would he go and do a silly thing like that for? <laughs> my, my aunt is a very odd person. But if you knew my dad and his odd sense of humor, it would sort of make sense. I mean, she's, she's weird in like her own way, but it kind of makes sense how they go together. But anyway, it's like she just knew for me to be calling out of the blue, there's only one reason for it, and that's somebody's dead. And I find that's the case in so many families. When some family member hears from some other family member that they barely know, and they hear from them from out of the blue, it's like, what do you want? It's like, you know, what's, what's going on? Why are you calling? It's like, well, you know, so-and-so passed away. And it's like, okay, that explains why I'm hearing from this person. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's our family, actually. It's like my, up, like my family up north Florida is like that. My grandmother passed, she passed of cancer. Uh, I was actually at the hospital the, the night she passed. And she wasn't going to go. She refused to go. She's like, I'm staying and getting better. Okay, so it's about 20 past eight. I guess I've been talking for about an hour. I, there was more stuff from that, uh, from the excerpts from Layla Wendell's book that I was going to go over, but we kind of got off of that track, and everything that I was talking about, all of the, the source material and stuff that I was pulling from, with the exception of the books, um, that's all in a PDF that I've got loaded into the Meetup site, so you can read it through on your own. And then the books, I copied the little icons and information from Amazon, which includes the link to the book, so that's another um, uh, file that I uploaded. Um, there's several books by Michelle Belanger, not just the one I mentioned, that deal with a lot of her ghost hunting stuff. There's more books by Constantinus, including the two that I mentioned, and there are several of uh, Layla Wendell's books that are listed, so you can get those through Amazon. Layla Wendell's books, I think most, if not all of them, have gone out of print at this point. There's one that you can get new still, but it's like $50, so I don't know if that's because the, of the book itself and the way it was published, or because it's rare now, because um, there's only probably so many left. Yeah, um, like a couple of Stewart's books, but you, can, you can't even get them. Yes, but but the the difference is that w it's it's kind of a similar situation with her other books, at least that I know of. Most of her other books are either out of print and unavailable completely, or you can still buy them used from the various people who are putting them up from the used book websites and stuff. Um, and depending on which book you're looking for and whether or not anybody has it available, those can get pricey. Um, some of them are the usual inexpensive prices for used books, but others, because they're hard to get hold of, are, are fairly pricey. Um, but you can still at least go to the Amazon website and look up the book and see if there's anybody there who's offered it for sale. I also included her website, the, the Necromantic, what is it, Westgate Necromantic, I think yeah. it's called, um, is one of the two websites that I put in the, um, the reading page. So you can go to her website, and I think they have several of her books available, even some of the ones that are out of print and not available at Amazon, but I think they're limited on what they have available now, too. When my grandmother passed, uh, she wasn't going to leave. Um, 
which is ironic because on the, at the hospital she was at, she was already seeing a lot of past relatives mm-hmm. in more ways. Mm-hmm. And she was telling the doctors all of this, like, oh yeah, I'm seeing this and this. Yeah, that's and that's going, common. They get close to death yeah. and they're at that borderline and, and they can see through to the other side. It's like even through her life she's always had sight, but it's come and go. Yeah. And when she's telling the doctors what she's seeing, they're like, oh, it's just the meds, it's nothing. And yeah, they also thing. say that light at the end of the tunnel is just your brain firing random yeah. neurons as it dies. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Doctors are lovely, aren't they? My dad, like, my dad's like, yeah, she's just seen a whole bunch of stuff. She wants to know. I'm like, well, what exactly is she claiming to see? And so Dead people. Yeah. <laughs> she, I, I wonder why at the moment of death, you yeah. know, when she's on the verge of dying, she would suddenly start hallucinating, of all things, dead people. Yeah. <laughs> So I went up there uh, the next day, and we had talked about death and aspirin and all sorts of stuff throughout my life because I've been back to nature. So when she told me about it, I'm like, you know they're real. You know what they are. Why are you? Because the doc, the doctor's an idiot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I actually had to walk her through the light to get her to uh, pass. And the day I did that, I also showed her how to change her form when mm-hmm. she passed, which we had talked about throughout our life, how you make astral bodies and stuff. And she wasn't sure exactly what right. talking about. Well, since she was so close, she could actually see my astral form. So oh, so she can see what you look like, yeah. So I jumped out of my uh, body next to her. So I was sitting on the uh, next to her. I had my wife at the time watch the door. So no one came in, but what the hell? You know, and I was holding her hand. I jumped out, made a form, and then changed it. And she's like, wait, who's the guy? I'm like, so I slowed it down and showed her a couple times. So I'm like, now this is all you have do. And then I showed her how to make uh, an avatar and then put her her spirit in it. That that reminds me, actually it reminds me of two things, but what I just got reminded of from what you were saying about avatars and working with them like that, there's another book that I totally forgot to, to bring or even mention, but it's a book by Starhawk who wrote Spiral Circle. Um, called The Pagan Book of Living and Dying. Mm-hmm. And I bought that book when my friend Willa's husband, Carl, was dying uh, because I thought I'd have a chance to read it over the Thanksgiving weekend to help him through the transition. He actually died the night that I saw him, the last night that I saw him, um, before I even left. He died like half an hour after I left. Um, but that is a really excellent book. It deals with how to deal with somebody who's not dead yet but who's dying and it talks about the different stages of grief and it talks about how people you know want to be close to someone when they're dying and as the person gets closer to death they actually are cutting all their ties so they drift further and further away from this world and reality and they don't really want to be bothered and that kind of thing Um, and she gives a number of exercises that you can do with someone as they're dying or if they have a terminal illness or something like that, one of which is masks, you know, trying different Mm -hmm. masks, things like that, like you were talking about doing in the astral. Um, So that's another really good book. 
that people could look into too. That's dealing with the death current. It's not specifically calling on the spirits of the dead, the people who are already dead, but it's very much working with death energies and, and the spirit of death for somebody who's about to go through that transition. Um, but my mother did something very similar for her grandmother when she was a little girl, when she was like Clara's age, I think 13 or 14, something like that. Um, she went over to her grandmother's house. Her grandmother was dying. My mother's aunt had been staying with her, watching over her sickbed for days with very little or no sleep because she was by her bedside 24-7, taking care of her all night. So when my mother got there, she said, I'm so glad you're here. I need a break. Can you sit with her for a little while while I go get showered and take a nap? And while my mother was sitting with her grandmother, that's when her grandmother decided to pass, which is also calm, and it's mentioned in... Um, in that book on dying that I was talking about where they're they're trying to separate yeah. themselves from life um, and also in the pagan book of living and dying um, when somebody's passing a lot of times they'll pass while the person who's been staying by their bedside 24-7 is out of the room you know it's like that person leaves that person leaves and they take that as their opportunity to escape kind of thing um, so she she passed while my mother was with her and just before she died my mom knew she was about to go because my mother saw you know had a vision of this white light portal type thing opening up in the air over her bed and she could see her grandfather her grandmother's husband um, in the forefront reaching out a hand for her and several other deceased relatives as well and she realized that they had come to help her grandmother pass over to the other side and she could sense that her grandmother was afraid of death of the transition so she was holding her hand trying to encourage her to go over the other side trying to encourage her to take her husband's hand all that kind of thing and she helped her pass over into the light and her grandmother died um, which is a bit of a trauma for her so young to die you know have someone yeah. die in her presence much less be the one to help them cross over and she didn't tell me this until I was I think close to 30 and she told me one night in one of our marathon talking sessions that we have when I come home for the holidays and we stay up until like three in the morning watching old movies and having some champagne for whatever the holiday it is and just start talking about anything and everything. And she was telling me this. And she was in tears by the time she finished telling me because apparently she hadn't told anyone that her whole life. Because she was so ashamed she thought she'd done something wrong. You know, she thought being raised Catholic as she was that it was like this kind of witchcraft, dark magic kind of thing that she shouldn't have done, and she felt ashamed of doing that her whole life. And here I am thinking, oh my god, my mother has a resonance with the same kind of magics and the same kind of energy that I do, and we're probably supposed to be doing the same damn job, and she's been hiding from it all her life, you know? Pretty much. Feeling bad for doing what she did. Yeah. So, yeah, so she ended up doing some something similar to what you did yeah. for your grandmother, but... If you go to the website at meetup.com, you'll see where Vivian has put two new links, and you can just download them right there. It's the necromancy file, there's a PDF, it's like 22 pages long. And then you've got a, right below that, or right above it, depending on the order it came in, is um, the book of what she's telling you about. Does it work? Um, oh, before I, before I forget, when you were talking about um, death energies and spirits of the underworld and that sort of thing, the one in Voodoo that most people are most familiar with is Bell and Samadhi. 
who is pictured generally as a skull with sunglasses, one frame of which has been, or one eye of which has been knocked out. It's the same kind of idea as Odin. They've got one eye on the real world and the other eye on the yeah. spirit world. You know, one eye on the physical, one eye on the spiritual. Um, and he's got a top hat. Yeah. And these are from New Orleans. They are in the colors and patterns of Belle Yosemite, which actually has a lot as a spirit in common with Oya, who is the queen of the cemeteries in the Santeria tradition. So it's purple and black, which are Oya's colors, and it's in patterns of nine, alternating nine stones of each color. Nine is the number of the ancestors in almost all the Ifa traditions, whether it's Voodoo, Santeria, whatever. And for anybody who is interested, I have some Balancemide oil that I brought with me from New Orleans, oh, which I'm wearing now, so if anybody wants a little bit. It's strongly deceptive to me, but that's a lot. First time, yeah, the first time, the first time I smelled this, number one, I was amazed at how good it smells for something that's supposed to be associated with the death spirit. Number two, I said, there's something familiar about that, but I can't quite place it. And she says, well, it's got such and such patchouli in it. And I said, but it doesn't smell like any patchouli I'm familiar with. The perfume that I wear all the time, my favorite perfume has patchouli in it. And she's like, well, this is such and such patchouli. And I can't remember what she said, but apparently it's some different kind of patchouli. <laughs> oh, that's a lot better than the answer. You know the answer. Use. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I lost my grade all day. Huh? Oh, very pretty. Is that for you, Lovetta? No, it's for you. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Reverend. Thank you. Whatever you want to use it for. Yes. Yeah, well, my, my first thought was this is what you're going to use to cover your Bovida. No, a Bovida no, no, no. in the Santorian tradition is a place for the ancestors. So the simplest Bovida, you put out a white cloth and you set out nine glasses of water for your ancestors to refresh themselves from. Oh. And then as it gets built up, people decorate it in different ways and they include pictures of their ancestors, both their family and um, their ancestors in the tradition, you know, their, their godfather who's initiated them and his godparents and his godparents and stuff like that. So yeah, I do talk to Stuart from time to time about the Indigo. They do fun. Yeah. I cold collectors. You, know. you can also set up one right for your guides on a different table, which... I That's different from Bovida, though. Bovida yes. is specifically for your ancestors. Yeah. But you can set up like a table for your guides and stuff. Which I have one set up. Well, I've had one set up. <laughs> yeah, every time I set mine up, the cat's kind of like... Jump on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, okay, and when, when the glasses... Yeah, when the glasses are full, they drink the water. Until the glasses are empty, and then they just knock the glasses over every time they turn on the table. So, and I've tried several different places around the house, trying to find some place where I can put it. You know, including tables that are like a certain height, but there's nothing, it's a small table, so it's not like there's room for anything else but the bovida and the, the glasses. <laughs> and the assumption that they won't jump there because there's nowhere for them to go, because every square inch of, of surface is covered. And they jump up on there like this, <laughs> drink the water, <laughs> and then knock all the glasses over. Yep. I had, so um, I've given up. <laughs> yeah, I gave up in cats and trying to get in the room. It's like every time I'm so off, you see props, I'm just like, 
You know, I haven't given up on my cats. I can never give up on my cats. Unfortunately, I had to give up on the both of them for my ancestors, which I think they understand. I don't have bovidas in this book because I had not yet started practicing Santeria. I had not been initiated into them when I, when I wrote this book. So there isn't a whole lot about the Santeria tradition in here. Um, eventually, I hope to expand it, and I'm thinking more and more about trying to start doing that soon. Again, my neck is an issue, but there's a lot that I really want to write, and a lot of the stuff that I was looking up tonight and digging up I thought in an expanded version, I'll probably go into detail about the whole history of necromantic practice. But what it is right now, what it was originally, was a handbook for working with spirits. Not just spirits of the dead, but any kind of spirit you want to work with. And it's a very simple how-to, what are spirits and why to work with them, precautions to take, protecting yourself. And then I've got a whole series of practical exercises on psychic self-defense and shielding. Um, how to know you're ready to work with spirits, how to test different spirits to find out what kind of thing they are and whether they are what they say they are, evocation, invocation, beating, um, and then some rituals from Wicca like drawing down the moon and sun and from ceremonial magic like God form assumption and creating a spirit which is um, basically it's the chaos magic practice of creating a servitor except again at the time I wasn't as familiar with chaos magic and I was going by another Wiccan book that I'd read about creating your own astral familiar. And that was kind of the concept that I was going with. But the big difference between this and creating a servitor or an astral familiar like the other book I read is that all of the books that I read when they talk about making a spirit like that, they, they talk about putting a limit to its life. Either setting a time limit for it to exist or um, dispersing its energy when it's done whatever it is you want to do. And for the same reasons that I don't condone calling up a spirit like you can order it around and command it, I don't think it's right to create something just to destroy it later. Any more than you would give birth to a child and then say, okay, I'm going to kill you in 10 years. You know. <laughs> If you're take the time to I just cringe at the thought, you know, you create something, yeah, it might be your creation, you're responsible for it, yeah, you're responsible for it, so you want to make sure when you create it, you create it in a certain way, you know, so that it's going to be a nice spirit and not go around doing nasty, naughty things, but I don't think anybody has the right to bring a being into existence in whatever form, on whatever level, and then destroy it like you're some sort of a, a god, <laughs> you know. Um, once, one, yeah. <laughs> they create, then they kill. Yeah, but they don't. They don't. They're getting to the point where they can create artificial life, but they haven't quite gotten there yet. They can't create a bacteria or a virus out of nothing. What they can do is take things that exist and then make changes to their genetic structure so that what results is something new that we haven't seen before. But they can't create life out of nothing yet. Yeah, that's, that's why I'm saying yet. They haven't gotten there yet, but they've been working on it for a long time and they are getting close. The problem with this is that it is so primitive, whatever they're going to build, that the moment they let it out of whatever little environment they made for it, something is going to eat it. Well. That's the nature of life. Nature, tooth and claw. Yes. Red and tooth and claw. 
Um, that's that's the cycle, you know. It's eat or eat or be eaten. There's there's things out there that are bigger than you, and they're always going to get you. And in our case, we're at the top of the food chain, except we're not because ultimately it's bacteria and viruses that get us too. Not just in the sense that they they kill us, although sometimes they can infect us and do cause our deaths, but that whatever finally causes us to die, even if it's just disintegrating from old age because our bodies have made so many copies of the cells over and over and over again that there are just too many mistakes and we fall apart and disintegrate into nothing, the bacteria in the soil are going to break us down into our respective chemicals. In a circle of life. Yes, exactly. Energy is always recycled. Matter is neither created nor destroyed. It just changes form. And that, in the end, is what the death energy is all about. It's this transition from one thing to another. You know, it's, it's a release of energy into something else, into some other form. You know, whether, you, whether you're an atheist and you believe that it just gets released into the ether and there's no consciousness or personality that exists, or whether you believe that the consciousness stays and just is transformed from your physical body into you know, some sort of spirit plane. Um, it's, it's not like anything actually dies or is destroyed, it just changes its form. Um, the changes kind of energy. My so. family is that we basically just don't die. Whatever kills us is just bizarro stuff. Uh, or we just keep going until we make too many copies yeah. of ourselves and disintegrate. <coughs> and normally it goes that way. We just hang on like grim death. Until you crumble away. Until yeah. we crumble away and then everybody's like, oh, thank God. They're finally free. And, uh, it's like everybody who I've known in my family dying, it's like they're close to the end. It's like, get this thing off of me. Oh, it doesn't work anymore. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and Chandra out of body. Yeah. To the worms. And that's one of the reasons I'm why, like you were I'm saying. Wet. Um, like you were saying, you know, doctors create life and destroy it whenever they're they're not really destroying anything the whole debate about um, euthanasia is all about our ability to prolong life not our ability to destroy it because one of the first things that we learned how to do as animal beings is how to cause life to stop uh. whether our own or somebody else's we know very well all different kinds of ways to stop life the question is, now that we've gotten to the point where we can hold death off for as long as we are able to do it um, in all kinds of circumstances where we didn't used to have any control over it, we're now faced with life being prolonged to the point where it's worth living. Yeah. And people are stuck, trapped <laughs> in these disintegrating bodies with minds that don't work and bodies that can't move not able to eat or drink or piss or have sex or do anything that even vaguely resembles life. Especially They're just cool. lying there plugged into a machine that's doing their breathing for them, that's beating their heart for them, you know, and it's way past time to let them go. But because of the Christian morality that says death is bad because you're going to go back to your savior, but that's a horrible thing for some reason. You know, I've never been able to understand that. What if I studied about heaven? But according to their well, mythos, it's better than the other place. Yes, yes, exactly. As, as a pagan, I have a lot of problems with the Christian faith, but having been raised Catholic, the one thing that was always drilled into me was that assuming that you go to heaven, 
and most people want to assume they're going to heaven, then you shouldn't be afraid of death. If you assume you're going to go to hell, which a lot of Catholics do, because no matter how good you are, there's some way, somehow, that you screwed up, whether you know it or not, and you're going to go to hell. So in a way, I can understand why Catholics fear death, because they're afraid that they're going to go someplace even worse, and it's going to be for eternity. So that kind of makes sense to me. But most of the branches of Christianity there are out there, you know, like the, the born-agains and evangelicals and stuff like that, their firm belief is that it doesn't matter how bad you are or what you do wrong. Once you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're saved and you're going to heaven. And heaven is this wonderful place that's so much better than here. And, and various people have variations on this belief, whether or not they believe in the Christian heaven. They believe that, you know, there isn't a bad place to go when you die. God wouldn't be that cruel. There's either nothing or there's a good place to go. In which case, why would you be afraid to die? Either it's the end, but there's no more suffering, and you'll never know what you're missing because your consciousness ceases to exist, or you go to someplace better, in which case, yay, rah, wouldn't you rather be someplace better? You know, seeing all of your friends and family that you haven't seen in forever and able to enjoy all the things that you love or, or even better things that you haven't thought of yet. Um, and yet people are just terrified by death. Actually, uh, actually, actually thinking about it, actually, I always thought death was a freedom. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and a, lot of, a lot of different religious sects down through the years have had variations on that, too. This idea that the physical body is bad because it's a trap for the spirit. We're trapped in this body. We're trapped and tormented by the physical needs to eat and drink and shelter from, you know, cold yeah. and hot and all that kind of stuff. And it's a wonderful thing to be released from that. And I can understand being afraid of dying as opposed to death. I'm not afraid of crossing over to the other side and becoming dead. What I'm afraid of is the process, the physical process of dying, because I figure anything that does enough damage to your body, whether it's an accident, illness, injury, or you know, disintegrating, anything that does enough damage to your body that it makes it stop working, is going to be pretty darn painful and uncomfortable and unpleasant. That's that's one of the differences with the Catholic with the Irish Catholic tradition is they firmly believe that that their loved one is going to a better place, and that's something to be celebrated. Yeah, but but Western culture generally, in American culture in particular, people are terrified of growing old, um, and they're terrified of dying and they don't want to be around anything that reminds them of death. Uh, it used to be that people kept uh, cemeteries and burial places and places for disposing of bodies more or less separated from the living area because it's just sanitary conditions that you have to you know, be yeah. aware of. But these days we try as best we can to put our funeral parlors and our cemeteries and what have you as far away from where anybody lives as possible so we don't have to look at it if at all possible. Thank you. And yeah. what usually ends up happening is that they'll put them on the outskirts of town as far away as they can possibly put them and still be convenient to get to when they need to. And then communities end up growing up around them and surrounding them. Um, but if you look at some of, the, some of the cemeteries in Queens, New York, man, Queens used to be a practically empty borough. So that's where everybody from the other four boroughs went to bury their dead. The cemeteries in Queens are fucking gigantic. I mean, you want to talk about necropolis? They go on for 
ever. And there's still people living in Queens now because people eventually ran out of space everywhere else. So they started moving into Queens. And now there's lots and lots and lots of neighborhoods and everything in Queens. But there's like these vast cities of the dead in the middle of all this, you know? Um, yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a wise tale. It's kind of a wise tale because a lot of times me, me and my mother would go to Casadega and it's like not too many people want to say, oh, hi, I live right next to a cemetery. It's right there. Except for people like my friend Kim, who's a medium and a tarot reader who yep. works out of Avalon, and she happens to live next to one of the older cemeteries in Orlando. Fairly small cemetery as they go. It's actually my grandma. I don't know. It's maybe like four or five house lots big, at at a guess. Yeah. You know. Well, and she lives. Huh? Orlando. That's small. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's not one of the. It's not one of the. You know, really big like church cemeteries or whatever. It's it's a you know small, you know, what probably started out as like a family plot or as a as the plot for, you know, the little settlement right in that area, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and she lives in the house right next to it. And as a medium, she ends up having a lot of traffic in her house. But as a medium, that's fine for her, you know, she enjoys her company. You know? Yeah, you know, you know, especially when they don't sleep and they just come and go. Well, that's, that's the one annoyance, is that when she's at home in bed trying to sleep and somebody suddenly walks through her bedroom or is standing at the foot of her bed, she, she has to tell them, you know, this isn't acceptable, you know, this is my time. This is private time, this is my time, I'm trying to sleep, you know, leave me alone, come back some other time. You know, but for the most part, it's just like she'll be standing in her kitchen and she'll look out the window and she can see people wandering around in the cemetery, you know, that aren't really there. And, yeah, you know. time to reverse that classic line when they show up at the foot of the bed. Get out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't come in. Get out. Yes. I live in Castleberry. <laughs> right at the end of the road, there's a decent, well, medium-sized cemetery. Well, the kids in the neighborhood used to use that as a cut-through to get to the road back there. I never did because I saw what was in the cemetery. And, um, well, one day, one of my, one of my um, middle school friends happened to live right off the side road. I went over to his house and ended up bringing home a list of attachments. <laughs> and from then on, everyone knew where I lived. <laughs> so it was nonstop traffic in my bedroom. Oh, oh, can yes. I tell a really cool bit of trivia? Okay. <laughs> I, I told my parents this once while I was visiting with them, and my father just started laughing and laughing and laughing as I just kept going and going. And I'm like, what? What's so funny? What's so funny? He's like, you just gave your mother a whole new set of superstitions to be worried about. <laughs> and it was all about why we do the things we do at funerals. Why, why widows wear widow's weeds, widow's black with a veil over their face. Yeah. Um, why a body, which at the time used to be waked out of the house, like we were talking about, mm -hmm. would go out the back door instead yeah. of the front. Why you'd cover the windows, and, or not the windows, the uh, mirrors with a black cloth. Um, and, and why once you took the body out the back door, you'd take a very winding route to the cemetery. So um, so the, the ghost can't come back to the house. Exactly. You take the corpse out the back door instead of the front to try and confuse the ghost so they're going out an unfamiliar way. 
then you take them on this very roundabout, confusing way. And they did this in New Orleans, too. I mean, New Orleans, it's like the cemetery is there or there. But you don't want to go straight there. So you get the horse-drawn ca horse carriage with the black plumes and everything, and you do it this way and this way and up around that way, and you go, I don't know, three or four miles this anyway. back and forth, back and forth, before <laughs> yeah. you finally showed up at the cemetery. Yeah, You'd have everybody dress in time. black. <laughs> You'd have everybody dress in black, not just the widow, so that the ghost wouldn't know who was who and which one to follow. Yeah. And you'd have all the women, in particular the widow, wear veils so he couldn't recognize her face. And then everybody would leave and they wouldn't go straight back to the house. They'd like go to the pub or go to somebody else's house first yeah, or whatever. Exactly. And this was all so the ghost could not follow you home. But that doesn't work if you just happen to show up at the cemetery and some stranger just decides to follow you home yeah. because he knows you can see him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so from the age of like six on, I had a busy room. And it got to the point to where there were some nights where I could sleep just fine, no problems. Then there was nights where I get this really dark presence. <laughs> where no, that was different. That was really like different electrical magnetic frequency disrupts it. Didn't know that as a kid. Yeah, yeah, I think. I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I did. Yeah, um, was child, like there's no way around it. Because I, I was young. I had all kinds of problems when I was young too, and I was too little to know what spirits were, and electromagnetic energies. And My mom's Catholic too, and oddly enough, she gave me an astral familiar to protect me without realizing yes. that's what she was doing. Yeah. Yes. Um, Catholic actually giving us a ghost like this She, she told me to. that Puff the Magic Dragon was my special friend who would. <laughs> He could shrink himself down to tiny size so he could sit on my shoulder at night and read me stories or just talk with me to comfort me when I was afraid and to keep me entertained. Or he could grow up big and huge and scary to scare off any of the monsters under the bed or in the closet or anything that might try to get in the window, burglars or anything like that, and to scare them away. And he could change colors and be whatever color I wanted. He could be purple polka dotted if I wanted or have plaid or whatever. And after she did that, and I started thinking of him that way, my night terrors stopped. And when I did have bad, scary dreams, I was able to first start hiding where I wasn't capable of hiding before. I just couldn't find a place to hide. They always found me. Or I was able to start fighting back, you know, and doing things to trick them and that kind of stuff. So, but it was my mother who started that, gave me that astral familiar. Wow. She had no clue that's what she was doing. Yeah, two things, two things, one, um, since I don't have the ability to actually see it, does it feel stuff? Hey! Claire Sentient. That's me, too. That would be greatly helpful. Well, this is just a hypothetical okay. idea throwing out there. <coughs> I've been always interested in experimenting on them. <coughs> Electromagnetic frequency disruption. Such as? Better to have it. Better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Kind of like a ray gun for ghosts. Like, um, setting up like an EMS field, something like that. Except I am not that sensitive. I have no way of telling the effect of, on these things. Um, I think I think that's why ghost hunters use EMF meters mm -hmm. to, to see if there's any sort of electromagnetic fluctuation 
in any of these areas where there are like cold spots or phenomena have been seen, stuff like that, to try and figure out if they have a particular signature, energy signature. I understand. Now, like, setting up white noise, that gives them an energy source to feed off of. Yes, I'm talking about disruption. Temporary disruption. You don't try to kill the thing, you just want to make it, want to run away. Could be that one. Well, there's things you can do, but uh, your well, the best, thing is just, that was just an idea. This is yeah. not a deep discussion right now. Yeah. The second thing yeah. I wanted to throw out, had an experience. I call mm -hmm. it the thing in the woods. <laughs> That's a common experience. <laughs> the thing in the woods. Yeah, in the woods. Yeah. It sounded yeah. like an H.P. Lovecraft novel. Mm -hmm. So, the rats in the walls. We're out in a, on a campsite. Uh, actually, the woods were surrounded by light building and, and uh, manufacturing places, mm -hmm. but it was still kind of out of there. A um, bunch of people on the campsite going back, because I'm in a, one of the remote campsites, go down the trail just instantly. It's like passing a line or a wall or something, instantly afraid. A second, I go back up. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Forward, afraid. And so I started testing the perimeter mm -hmm. of this thing. It was roughly spherical, oblong, something. I don't know. But okay, so once I pretty much established the perimeter, uh, perimeter for this thing, it starts to move. Mm. It's like, okay, uh, ah, get out of here. Maybe it was an animal. Because <laughs> you could pick up like an animal. Yeah. With, as a sense of fear. Yes, exactly. Like, but, um, so anyway, it's like, oh yeah, I get back to the main camping area. It's like, oh, by the way, funny thing happened to me on the way here. <laughs> like, oh yeah, that's why we're all here. We ran into it too. Mm, okay. So, okay, whatever. Yeah, there's, there's lots of things that could have been. It could have been somebody who was killed and buried in the woods, or it could have been a nature spirit, you know, some kind of fae or whatever. I had a friend in Orlando who lived, there, there was like a little pond type thing where there was some kind of nature spirit there, like a Jenny Greenteeth kind of thing, which is over in England, Ireland, they have different names for it, but, but it's more or less a, a fae creature that lives in little swampy pond type things and lures children in, stuff like that. Nasty. Nasty spirit. It's so. so, okay. N nasty water spirit okay. in the pond. Yeah. Okay. Then there's this road. On the other side, there's woods and there's houses in the back in the woods. You know, you take okay. long winding driveways to get into these houses that are all sent to the woods. So I'd go to visit her and I'd be driving up the driveway from the road with trees on either side of me, thick foliage, thick greenery, whatever always had this sense that I was absolutely not welcome, that they were nasty, ugly things in that, that woods that did not want human beings there at all. They were really pissed off that people had built houses back there, and they were not happy that I was driving in and out and everything else. Would get through her gate onto her property. She had a regular, you know, um, metal fence, wire fence, whatever you call it, chain, chain, link. Yeah, chain link fence, all around the, uh, all around the perimeter of the property. As soon as I was on the property within the perimeter of that area, I felt fine. I still felt, felt like there were lots of things around, but they felt nice and friendly to people. I'd be getting ready to leave in the evening and I'd be going to stand by the car which was parked over on the edge of her property where the fence was and I would feel 
fear just like creeping up on me. Like I'd start to feel paranoid and frightened and like there were things in the woods who wanted to get me. And I finally started looking over at the woods on the other side of the fence and realizing it's coming from the other side of the fence. You know, whatever it is that's negative in these woods, she's managed to keep it out with her fence perimeter. And she she would tell me that she would take her kids out at various times during their childhood and walk the bounds of the property with them while she reset the wards. Now, in England, they used to call that beating the bounds. They'd take the kids around to show them where the boundaries of all the properties were so that they would get it in their heads. And she basically did the same thing with her kids, showing them where the boundaries of the property were. so that the things on the other side of the fence wouldn't be screwing with them. Right. Um, and yeah, and that thing in the pond was, was one of the biggest ones of all. That was, that was a, a nasty creature, but even, even we came to terms after a while. And the things that used to scare the hell out of me on the other side of that fence, once I realized that they were trapped on the other side of the fence and they couldn't really do anything because they couldn't come over to me, and when I was in my car driving back, it's like they could make me feel afraid, but they couldn't really do anything to me. I started using that as a learning exercise, you know, trying all the different shielding things that I'd ever learned to see if I could make the fear go away and see if I could get them to stop affecting me. I can understand why they're pissed, though. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if you were an intelligent deer, you wouldn't be worried about the human shooting you. You'd be worried about caving over your habitat. Right. So. Right, and the fact that, you know, you come into somebody's backyard that used to be, you know, where you go grazing and you want to go grazing on their flowers and nice yummy things that they've planted for you and they start throwing rocks at you or shooting yeah. you know, BB guns and yeah. crap like that because you're an annoyance and nuisance to them. Yeah. Well, but what you're talking about is not dissimilar to what they were already trying to do back in the Middle Ages. That was the whole purpose for drawing the circle with the magic symbols mm-hmm. in it. They were trying to trap the spirit. They were trying to... First, they were trying to use the right words and techniques to call the spirit forth from wherever it was, to pull the energy where they wanted it to go, just like somebody throws a light switch to get the electricity to go where they want it to go. And then they used the circle to keep it trapped, you know, so that they would be protected from it while they did whatever it was they needed to do. And while it was in that circle until they released it, it was supposed to be trapped and stay put. And how did that work out for well, in some instances, it supposedly worked very well, but oh, of course, okay. uh, you you have all kinds of uh, scary stories that were constantly being told to try and discourage people from doing it, oh, talking yeah. about how if they got even one little thing wrong, then the yes. demon would jump out and eat you, or you know, if you forgot and you put one little toe over the line, then the demon would jump out and eat you, or you know, if you did anything to break the barrier, like, you know, toss something to the demon, then it would break out and eat you, okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. All these things that supposedly could go wrong. And try home. Yeah. But um, okay. from everything I've heard from people who actually practice, and this goes for, like, Wiccan circles and stuff, too, the circle is a very, very common magical tool for containing energy, for keeping bad things out and keeping good energies in and um, uh, building them up you know, so that they don't disperse, so that they just keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger within that circle until you can build like a cone of power or something and you direct it somewhere. I, I was saying before, I, I was mentioning the, the capture, contain, electromagnetic weapon oh, or whatever, no. and you backed up like 10 feet. I didn't mean to offend you. <laughs> no, you didn't offend me. I'm just like, wait a minute, you're playing with ghosts? I'm getting over No, no, <laughs> no. I, I have not played. This is theoretic. Okay. Yeah. Now the the first practical hoop that you're going to have to jump through 
is to figure out exactly what kind of energy force a spirit is, whether or not it's pure electromagnetic or whether it's anything to do with a strong force or a weak force or any, any sort of quantum force, because that's the latest theory since quantum theory has come out, is that it's not necessarily a, a specific force that's different from the electromagnetic force like runs our body, but it's a question of being out of phase like like the quantum or the quanta that make yeah. them up or, or yeah. phase shifted or something in which case it's not going to have an electromagnetic signature necessarily or it's not going to have anything that's recognizable for any of the instruments that we're currently using for ghost hunting because it's like being in another dimension <laughs> you know or or between dimensions almost like one foot in one dimension and one foot in another dimension mm -hmm. and we're so like just on the edge of even beginning to understand any of that stuff. It's kind of hard to figure out exactly how you'd measure that or figure out. Yes, not not impossible. <laughs> or, I mean, they, they talked about things like that in Star Trek. Everything at it, and something is going to do something. Well, they yeah, no, they they talked about things like that in Star Trek because in Star Trek, their their uh, propulsion system was based on the idea of folding space. Yeah, right. The um, uh, the warp drive that they used actually, thank you, actually bent space around them. Right. And that resulted sometimes in what they called phase shifts, which were like quantum shifts, you know, so sometimes things were slightly out of phase and they could affect the ship or you could see them or something in very similar ways to ghosts and ghost phenomena. And uh, they had more than one episode where something like that happened and it wasn't always the same thing that was causing it or the same kind of thing that was happening, but in every instance they tried to figure out, okay, well, can we build a phase shifter? You know, can we, can we figure out how to bring, bring the signals into alignment in the same way that you would like get two metronomes to start beating in sequence? Right. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and that was almost like a like a rhythm, like a wave rhythm that they were trying to bring in line so that they were going at the same going at the same time. Oh. There's something, there's some science fiction show that I saw just recently that addressed just that exactly. Uh, I think fringe. it was on Fringe, yeah. Yeah. An alternate reality and the, the wave function for the reality is very similar to our wave function for reality, but it's just slightly off because it's like started a half a beat ahead or something. Mm -hmm. And at certain points, like at the, the sun flares and stuff, they come into sync. Just And they use the metronome example. You've got two metronomes that are just slightly off, and they're always going to be off except for that one occasion where they beat together exactly for like two or three beats, and then they start going off again. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> On a completely different subject. I really don't have to worry about actually running into anything because they kind of run like hell for me now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oh, something that I've done, it's not like a scientific experiment with, with actual physical reality. It's more of a, an astral magic thing that I figured out how to do. Like I said earlier, I used to have night terrors until I got the astral familiar, and then they tend to stop, or when things scary things did still happen, I could defend myself. One of the ways that I started defending myself in my dreams was by, um, you know, even if I'm not aware I'm dreaming, sometimes I can still 
practice magic. So I'll be able to, in the dream, form a ball of energy, which in the dream I can see. In my waking state, if I did that, I could feel it tingle in my hands, but I wouldn't be able to see it. But in the dream, I can see it like this blue-white ball of energy, and it's like sparkling, and I, I can throw it like a fireball, like a magician in a, like a fantasy movie would be able to throw a fireball at something. And it makes these things go running. And there was at least one occasion where I woke up you know, in the middle of the night, right out of a dream like that, like right in mid-throw, and felt it like hit the wall and splatter, and my cats were at that end of the room and went <laughs> in their separate directions. So it seems like it was more than just like a dream form type of thing, like there was some reality to it, and it's entirely possible that whatever that substance is that we use when we create magic, it's of a similar type and kind of energy to whatever spirit is made of when they cross over to the other side. That may be why magic circles can affect them. It may be why, you know, a, a magic orb of energy could affect them if you threw it at them. That might be the sort of thing that would disrupt it. In which case, one of the ways to start figuring out how to make something that could screw around with that would be to start practicing with people who do magic, who do Reiki, who do any kind of, you know, manipulation of energy at all, and see which instruments can pick up when they're doing it, and how much, and what kind of energy it seems to be, and then see if you can find ways to duplicate it. Also, the date for the next meetup, the first Friday in June, is Friday, June 4th. And I think we talked about discussing Nephilim, because we haven't talked about Nephilim in a while. Yeah. So we can, we can talk about Nephilim. So yeah, so June 4th, Friday, June 4th at 7 o'clock, and we'll talk about the Nephilim, unless we can get our, our I highly doubt it, because every time I try to get a hold of them, it's like impossible. Well, well, I'll keep trying. Supposedly, the last month he was able to do it, it was the ride that screwed yeah, up. The so, I'm beginning to think that circumstances are conspiring against him coming here, but not because it's his fault. It's just the way things are happening. Yeah. Like so, this one does him doing a show. But yeah. she kind of warned us when she was describing his life. You know, <laughs> when she was describing his particular kind of other twin, she was describing just exactly this sort of thing happening. So, all we can do is keep trying and hopefully eventually we'll be able to hear what he has to say. So we'll sign off here. I'll stop the recording and save it. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.